Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Jacqueline Kellish, Director of Public Engagement at the Center and your host for this episode. In the modern concert hall, we are accustomed to participating in a certain kind of listening, one that is focused on attempting to understand what the composer is trying to say. This has not always been the case. Pre-Enlightenment audiences assumed that the primary purpose of music was to move them emotionally and listened with their own reactions in mind. But why did this change take place? How did composers train audiences to listen differently? And how is this change in listenership related to other shifts in the ways we respond to the arts in general? Our guest today is Mark Evan Bonds, Carrie C. Boschimer Distinguished Professor of Music at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Evan is the former editor-in-chief of Beethoven Forum and has written widely on the music of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. As a fellow this year, he is working on a new project, Music's Fourth Wall and the Rise of Modern Listening, which examines changing assumptions about listening since the middle of the 18th century. Welcome, Evan. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Evan, your current project examines musical works that break the imagined fourth wall of musical performance. We are perhaps more accustomed to hearing this term used in reference to theater, television, or film. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you define this phrase and how it functions specifically in a musical context. I like to begin with an example, which, of course, I can't uh, play here, can't even whistle it. But uh, there's a very well-known string quartet by Joseph Haydn from the 1780s that comes to its conclusion in its last movement, and then it starts up again, and it seems to be over, and then it starts up again, and it seems to be over, and it starts up, and it doesn't seem to be over, but it's over. And so to my mind, this is the composer calling attention to his agency, the fact that he's behind the music that he's pulling our strings in effect. He's making us conscious of music as music. He is getting us to think about what he has put together. And to me, that's analogous to actors on the stage who suddenly drop their character role and turn and face the audience and make some remark to the audience to acknowledge the presence of an audience. And this is one of the first works that really does this And it's a very well-known work, and it's usually, I'd say, almost dismissed as an example of musical humor. And it is funny, but I think there's more to it than just uh, a good laugh. A good laugh is part of it, but this particular piece got me thinking about uh, what Haydn does, not only here, but in a lot of other pieces that he wrote uh, to engage the audience and make them aware of his presence as a composer. So he's breaking the fourth wall. And in a nutshell, my my argument is that he really started something new in music uh, by almost compelling listeners to uh, listen reflectively, as I call it. In other words, to be aware of the music as a construct, as a structure, as a form, as opposed to simply letting it wash over you, which is another way of listening. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, as you suggested uh, in your introduction, that's the way most people listened before the late 18th century. And I think Haydn really started something new with with this piece and with others like it. 
so that by the time we get into the 19th century, audiences accepted a certain responsibility to uh, learn about music, to learn about the composer's life, to learn about that particular piece. And listening came to be considered a skill. And that's the big change I'm looking at. When the fourth wall is broken, especially unexpectedly in musical contexts, have you observed or read about particular audience reactions to this phenomenon in the moment? I, I have, and I've experienced them myself when, uh, when I've heard this quartet in performance. In fact, there's a, uh, a recording on YouTube of um, Sir Simon Rattle conducting the Berlin Philharmonic in one of Haydn's late symphonies that does something similar in the finale. It seems to come to a conclusion, but it's not really a conclusion. Haydn writes in a few measures of rest, and then the music starts up again. And this is the Berlin Philharmonic. This is a sophisticated audience listening to it. And the audience bursts into applause. And then when the music starts up again, you can hear a lot of chuckling in, uh, in the hall, and the music then goes on to its real conclusion. So it's an enjoyable experience, just as breaking the fourth wall in theater or in, in movies uh, can be very effective and very very funny, too, at, at times. But as I say, it really marks a shift in the relationship between audiences and the music that they hear, audiences and the composer who wrote the music that they hear. After we saw the first instances of the fourth wall of music being broken, you talked about how eventually this led, in your opinion, to a shift and an embrace of what you term reflective listening. Could you talk a little bit more about how long you think it took for that shift to really set in to a certain kind of cultural consciousness in the listening public? It took a long time. Uh, this was not a paradigm shift. When you listen reflectively, you're aware of what's going on in the music, and that requires a certain degree of knowledge about the music. It's why you so often hear a phrase that I really actually don't like hearing, something like, uh, well, I really enjoy classical music, but I don't know anything about it. People don't say that about, about rock music or hip-hop. They simply enjoy it, and that's wonderful. Music is meant to be enjoyed. But they, along the way somewhere, they seem to have acquired this sense of uh, an obligation to, to understand the music, to know something about it. As I say, listening came to be perceived as a skill. So when did it occur? It's very gradual. Uh, starts in the late 18th century, gains steam in the 19th, really becomes standard in the, in the 20th, I think. You see that with the rise of uh, music appreciation texts, teaching people how to listen, music appreciation courses in, in universities, and I teach those myself. And um, in many ways, more of an ideal than, than an actuality. For example, program notes. Even if you don't read the program notes in a, in a concert, they send a message because they say, in effect, here's what you need to know before you hear this piece. Now, of course, you don't need to know what's in the program notes. You can enjoy the piece without it. But it, there is that subtle message that, that uh, you do need to understand something about classical music in order to enjoy it. And this is a kind of paradox, and I'm wrestling with it myself because uh, not only do I teach music appreciation, I'm the author of a reasonably successful music appreciation book, and it's caused me to start thinking about uh, some of the very basic premises of uh, what goes into teaching people how to listen. As you've mentioned, your project spans a significant time frame and a number of genres. 
And I wonder if you could speak about the particular challenges and the benefits of doing this kind of work around a specific question or theme across time and a variety of different works. I think I really had to do it that way because if you only look at one genre or one composer, uh, you don't have a sense of the of the broader parameters. And I'm also talking here about assumptions. And assumptions, by their very nature, don't get articulated. People don't lay out what they're assuming is assumed, uh, what people already know and take for granted. So a lot of it is reading between the lines and just noticing how language changes over time in, in talking about music. To give one specific example, there are a lot of journals, have been a lot of journals aimed at the music-loving public since the really the 18th century. And it's only in the 19th century that they begin actually talking about the works they're reviewing as objects. Up until that point, it's all about, did I like it? Did it have a beat I can take home? Did I enjoy it? Did it give me pleasure? And it's only later, really about 1820, 1830 or so, that journals really start analyzing uh, the pieces uh, that they're talking about. That's a big shift, but it really is gradual. There are still plenty of people in the concert hall who go to listen uh, in a way that I call resonant, opposite of reflective listening. Resonant listening is when the music just, where you resonate with the music and it just flows through you. And I think the important takeaway for me and what I've discovered in my work this past year is that that's, that's an entirely legitimate form of listening and that there's no reason to look down on it. If we want to learn more about music, that's great, and I've got a textbook I can sell you. But there's value, I think, in this kind of resonant listening. You've talked about the audience reaction that you've observed in relation to the Haydn piece. But I'm wondering if you could actually walk us through your first reaction to either the Haydn or another piece of music that breaks the fourth wall to let us know what you were thinking, how you might have assessed what was going on, and sort of your knee-jerk, instinctive, or resonant reaction to that. Well, I do remember, and in fact, I start this new book I'm working on uh, with my father, who was a um, submarine officer in World War II, and uh, was not a didn't really express outward emotions a lot, typical of his generation. Uh, he loved his family. He loved to travel. He loved good food and wine. But uh, he was emotionally fairly reticent. But I have very clear childhood memories of him putting um, Glinka's overture to Ruslan and Ludmilla on the family turntable and pretending to conduct it. And his face just lit up in, in a way I, I really never saw otherwise. And first of all, when I, I, was, I was very small then, but uh, it got me thinking about music and enjoying music. Then many, many years later, he asked me what I was working on, and I played this particular uh, string quartet by Haydn for him. And even though he understood very little about music, he had no formal training, he struggled to sing in tune, he got the joke. It was very clear uh, and, and said something like, he's just yanking my chain. So I'll go to his reaction uh, to that particular piece, that you don't need any formal education really to, to get the joke. And that quartet, by the way, is nicknamed The Joke. So uh, I think it speaks to the immediacy of the music 
there are so many other examples um, from Haydn and and uh, also from Beethoven later on after him. There's one um, slow movement of a late Haydn symphony that is just absolutely serene and gorgeous and kind of begins to wind down toward the end and gets slower and slower and softer and softer. And then finally there's this pause and you expect to hear the final chord. And instead you hear this loud blast from bassoon and people laugh in the concert hall at that, at what it seems to be the most inappropriate point. And yet I would make the case that Haydn would have loved the laughter. He wrote it as a laugh line and and he would have loved that. Um, it goes against concert hall etiquette, but that etiquette is a is manufactured much, much later after his time. So I think all of this just goes to the idea that we really should enjoy music more and not feel bad if we don't understand it quite as well as we do. The examples to which you've pointed from your early interactions with your father to the experience of audiences in a concert hall all point to the creation of some kind of community around the experience of listening to music and especially around the experience of reacting to the unexpected in the form of the fourth wall breaking. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that and how you see the role of community functioning in this specific context and in music appreciation more broadly. Yeah, actually, it's interesting that um, a lot of the examples that I draw on for the idea of the fourth wall come from the genre of the symphony, which is obviously a big genre. It's the whole orchestra. It's a big concert hall, unlike the string quartet, which is often performed in a smaller space. And uh, the symphony itself in the 18th and early 19th century was widely regarded as a kind of image, kind of a kind of model of society where you have all these different instruments, you know, strings from the high violins down to the low double basses, uh, winds, percussion, brass. They're all very different in sound, but they all combine to make a coherent whole. And this was often held up as a kind of model of society. Everyone has his or her own voice, but it's the way they work together as a whole. And so I, I think that the fact that that Haydn and, and Beethoven, too, as I say after him, are breaking the fourth wall as often as they do in the genre of the symphony is significant because it is the public genre of instrumental music. Finally, I want to ask you to reflect for us a little bit on the specific perspective that you have brought to this project and whether it's changed as you've completed your research. Your primary interest and background is in music, but I imagine that you've had to bring a particular interdisciplinary perspective to the research you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about the specific frameworks or approaches that you've taken in this research that might have used sources or knowledge outside of your discipline of music? Well, this is one of the great things about being at the National Humanities Center is, is the ability to connect with people in other disciplines. And yes, uh, absolutely. Um, the fourth wall, obviously, the, the very idea is taken from theater. And part of what I look at is, is that tradition within theater and ask the question of why was music so late to the party? Uh, it really was. There's this long tradition of self-reflectivity in, in theater, also in painting, paintings that make you see something that's not there. It's the same idea. But they call attention to the fact that this is a painting. 
in fiction as well. Self-reflectivity became very big in the middle of the 18th century, just prior to the period that I start looking at uh, with authors like uh, Lawrence Stern and Diderot as well. Lawrence Stern uh, writes this wonderful novel called Tristram Shandy in the uh, 1750s, and almost every other page reminds you that you're reading a novel, that these aren't real characters, uh, which is a very different experience. You know, usually we think of a great book as one that makes us forget we're reading a book, or a great movie as one that makes us forget we're watching a movie. And yet, here are these authors and these painters calling attention to uh, the materiality of what they're doing. And so the fact that it kicks in when it does in, in music, I think, is significant. It's not something that happens in isolation. It's, it's something that happens uh, across all the arts. And then, uh, curiously enough, in about the 1830s, it all just kind of disappears. And music becomes very, very serious again. And it's not until much later in the 19th century with composers like Mahler, Gustav Mahler and Eric Satie, that they begin to poke fun at music as music. And then, of course, the ultimate example, uh, John Cage in the 20th century, who who has a piece of four minutes and 33 seconds of complete silence, which, of course, is not complete silence. There's no such thing. But uh, it's, that same, it's that same tradition, that same kind of subversive desire to poke fun at the art. It's fascinating to think about the ways that breaking the fourth wall in music is so intimately related to these attempts to call attention to the constructed nature of other art forms that we engage with every day. Thank you so much, Evan, for bringing this to our attention and for a fascinating discussion. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.